Welcome everybody to season two of Andy Hears the 80s, the show where I fill out my music collection with the vital albums from 80s most important artists. Episode two, back again. I'm joined as always uh, with my co-host Aaron Keck. How are you? Hello. Good. How are you? Good. Uh, We are going into uh, one of the bands that we heard a little bit of last season, uh, The Replacements. We heard their album Let It Be in our alternative rock episode, uh, and it was probably one of the standouts from the season for me. Uh, So I'm excited to get back in with the rest of their uh, records. I was excited to listen to all of the the other stuff from the replacements because I, I listened back to Let It Be and I gotta say I'd, I'm not at, I was not at all familiar with the replacements going into this podcast or this season when we listened to Let It Be last time that was the first time I'd actually sat down and listened to a replacement album from start to finish so mm-hmm. I knew nothing I was coming in with nothing and when you said oh we're going to do the replacements an entire episode I was thinking back to Let It Be and I realized that I didn't it didn't stick with me I didn't really remember much from the album uh, so going back and listening to all of their output from the 80s gave me much, I think, more of an appreciation uh, of this band and who they are and what they did and how they evolved from 1981 to, to 89, because they evolved a lot. Yeah, and it's kind of it's convenient for the purposes of the show, but their discography runs for basically the whole 80s. I mean, they exactly, start, right? Yeah. They start at the beginning and they basically, by the end of the 80s, are done. So it works out perfectly, and you really do see quite the evolution, I think. Mm. Uh, but before we dig in I do want to mention that I read um, a really excellent biography of the band for this episode a book called uh, Trouble Boys The True Story of the Replacements uh, written by Bob Mayer uh, came out in 2016 and was really good if uh, anybody out there is interested I definitely recommend reading it it goes super in depth on the band members and all the shows and all the albums and everything it has interviews with everybody you would want to hear from uh, it was really well done and some people that you don't want to hear from? <laughs> Maybe some people you don't want to hear from. But Does that mean that I can just sit back and just let you take it with uh, with all this background knowledge? Because I'm, I'm good doing that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. This will kind of be a abridged audiobook version of The Trouble Boys. <laughs> uh, but really, the story begins, you know, with the Stinson brothers, Bob and Tommy. Uh, Bob born in Minneapolis in 1959. His dad uh, would leave the family two years later leaving Bob with his mom, Anita, and his sister, Lonnie. And uh, they would leave a few years later to go to San Diego, where she would meet the eventual father of Tommy Stinson, born seven years after Bob. Uh, But Tommy's father would become, unfortunately, abusive towards Anita. They would move out of there uh, in the mid-'70s. They'd end up back in Minneapolis, and then she would learn of the uh, abuse that he was putting towards uh, Bob and Lonnie as well, which really kind of set... Bob down a unfortunate path. He wouldn't be officially diagnosed as bipolar schizophrenic until the early 90s, but this would be kind of the start of a lot of trauma for Bob, uh, including and getting him ended up uh, living in a state-run boarding school until he was 18. Uh, but this kind of got him... The, 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 the formality of the school that he was in actually did pretty well for him to help kind of get him focused and realize that the only thing that he really had any passion towards uh, was music and that's kind of what got him started down the path that would lead to the band Uh, and then once he got out of there he would famously give 
uh, little 11 year old Tommy a bass guitar to try and keep him out of trouble, which what better way to keep somebody out of trouble than to start a rock band, right? Did he succeed spectacularly or fail spectacularly in doing that? I could see that going either way. You know, it did in that he didn't, I mean, he certainly didn't get into the same kind of trouble that Bob did, at least until they became a band. <laughs> so right. I don't know. It is kind of a success and failure, but at least uh, it became, you know, they were in it together. He had a support group at right. least in the band that he might not have had otherwise. I'm gonna I'm gonna be interested in hearing stories from you having having read this biography of what it was like as Tommy was 11 in the late 70s. So when the when these first albums come out, he's what 15, 16 years old thereabouts. He's not yeah. old enough to legally drink until basically the band is done. So like I'm I'm curious as to what life is like for this like 17, 18 year old kid mm-hmm. who's in the middle of this rock and roll scene. Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't turn 21 until the band's almost over. So, I mean, they kept talking about him drinking, and I'm like, how is he doing that? He's not 21 yet. <laughs> That's not legal. <laughs> yeah. Certainly uh, yeah, not I mean, in the 80s. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I think uh, they do actually mention that even then, the drinking age was like 18 or 19 uh, in Minneapolis, or in Minnesota at that point. But st- but still, he was <laughs> still not that age until well right, into the Right, right. Uh, but yeah, he was, and it was funny, they, uh, everybody, like the first time they saw the band, you know, if they heard them and then turned a corner, they're like, oh, I thought I heard a bass. Who's your bass player? And then Tommy would like step out from behind an amp because he's like <laughs> just this little child. That's me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but then a, a friend of theirs would introduce them, uh, to their drummer, Chris Mars, uh, and they, the three of them would kind of rotate with some other friends and form the band Dog Breath, which was their local minnesota band uh and it wouldn't be until a little ways later that they'd get introduced to paul westerberg who would become the guitar player and singer for their band and those four would stick together as dog breath before eventually getting a gig uh for like kind of an like an aa type event ironically enough where they changed their name to the impediments and then were promptly banned from the event and any future events because they showed up drunk to the uh, to the concert right but uh, which and, is and very... clearly decided to blame it on their name was that the <laughs> yeah i think so yeah. but uh, they basically you know they weren't quite the belligerent drunks that they'd become known to be yet but they just i mean they were a young band of kids who were like wanted to shake off the nerves of stage fright and just snuck in drinks to do that with but the the banning from those concerts in order to get any other local gigs they changed their name again and this time to the replacements, which gotcha. would stick for a while. This is a much better name than Dog Breath. I'll give them that much. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they'd have the same cachet. I don't think Dog Breath would have stuck, yeah. No. And it's funny, the, the replacements, it's obviously a better name than Dog Breath, certainly, but it's also a good kind of name in that they were a very self-deprecating bunch. I mean, yeah. they, they named themselves the replacements because... They would, the joke was like, well, I don't know who you came to see, but we're the replacements like, who showed up <laughs> instead of them. And that kind of sense of humor would guide them through their pretty much their whole career, I think. Mm. Uh, uh, but Paul uh, would kind of become the main songwriter right away. I mean, once he once he realized that the four of these guys were going to stick together for a while, he just started writing and writing and writing. He'd bring dozens of songs to their rehearsals, see what stuck. If it didn't stick, he'd just throw it out and just keep writing. 
Uh, eventually enough of the songs that they wrote that they liked, they recorded onto a cassette with the, just a basic four-track recorder, uh, and he brought it to the record store that he was frequenting, uh, which was run by a guy named Peter Jesperson, who was just coincidentally starting up a local uh, Minnesota label called Twin Tone and was looking for bands to sign. So he worked up the courage to bring in this cassette, one side of which had the replacements demos and the other side had Paul's sister's handwriting with uh, some Santana songs on the other side huh. that Peter found hilarious and then shoved in a drawer, didn't listen to for a few weeks until one day he dug it out and ended up falling in love with it. Nice. Uh, he convinced the other guys at the label to uh, bring the band on, and in 1980, they'd start recording their debut album, uh, which would go on to be released in August of 81, titled Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash. Uh, why don't we play a little bit of a song from there? This is I Hate Music from their first album. So you can see this is kind of the the start of their sound, right? It has a little bit of sense of humor. It has a driving beat. But they're kind of just starting out as like kind of a garage punk kind of band. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be it's going to be fascinating to kind of trace the evolution of this band because by the time uh, we kind of already mentioned it like by the time we get to the late 80s they're going to sound completely different from this mm-hmm. but they keep the sense of humor and the self-deprecatingness all the way through I think most of the decade. I don't I don't know if we get to the end of the decade and they hang on to the sense of humor and the self-deprecating but most of the way through the decade uh yeah. they're going to hang on to that. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, the attitude is there from the beginning. It does. It might not last the whole time, but there's always elements of it. But this is, it's a cool kind of jumping off point. I think it's obviously a debut album from a bunch of young kids, right? It sounds like uh, something, like nowadays, I feel like growing up, a lot of bands, this is what they sounded like when they started, right? Yes. Whether yeah, they, yeah, whether yeah. they heard the replacements or not, they sounded like early replacements when a bunch of teens picked up guitars and tried to make music, right? Exactly, yeah. This album, to me, is really inconsistent. Like, I didn't mm-hmm. honestly like this album very much from start to finish, but there are a couple of songs on it that, I mean, we're going to do our top five at the, at the end of the episode, uh, I think depending on depending on how we depending on how we measure here, uh, one or two songs off of this album do end up making my top five. So like, there's some really wow. really great gems in this album. Uh, I'm not a big fan of I Hate Music, uh, but some other stuff in here is just phenomenally good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this one just stood out to me because it's such it's it's a fun song. It's funny, 
uh, you know, a band, obviously they don't hate music. They love it. That's the only thing they can do. But the, I think it has and funny lines like, I hate my dad. One day I won't. Like there's, there's yeah. just funny yeah, little yeah, quick yeah. jokes that obviously they they know a little more than they like to let on about, yes. how, you know, what they're saying. Yeah. Uh, but, and the title is funny. It actually comes from uh, when they would rehearse at the Stinson house. The music was so loud it would literally just rattle the walls. And so if they didn't take out the trash before they practice, it would spill out all over the kitchen floor. So that before every rehearsal, they took out the trash. And then so that's where the album title came from. Nice. That is such like a garage punk teenagers rehearsing in like yeah. their parents' basement uh, origin story for an album, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. In Minneapolis. And- yeah, in Minneapolis, and so, yeah, nineteen eighty. So this, so Tommy would have been fourteen when they were recording this. So he's still, yep. he, even he's still a little kid. And then, and so I guess Bob and Paul would have just turned twenty-one. So there you go. That, yeah. That's the that solves the mystery. He they're buying the alcohol for Tommy. That's how he's going. <laughs> yeah, clearly, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, so Jesperson becomes kind of their de facto manager at this point, uh, because they're they're too young and just wanting to party to really get any of the business side of their band done so he kind of takes them under their wing and starts booking shows for them uh, you know they play around minneapolis hit up some other midwest cities you know madison chicago uh and then this is where they they do actually get some press like all the way in the village voice uh in new york picks up a copy of the album and reviews it positively so people mm-hmm. are just people are taking notice pretty quickly um and then that's as they get more attention their live shows are also starting to evolve into what they'd be where they're the completely hit or miss crazy uh are they too drunk to play or are they just drunk enough to play kind of shows. right uh and then they'd follow that up with an ep called stink uh, that they would put out on twin tone also which is also still very kind of punk sound uh but uh was kind of more there if it sounds like from the book too they kind of recorded those to get them out of their system like they didn't want to be a punk band they didn't dress like punks they didn't really identify as punks even though they loved listening to it they felt like they were something different right so yeah. when they're well, i think westerberg they, in particular right like he had he had big aspirations even early on yeah i mean they paul especially uh knew i'm either going to be a rock star or a janitor for the rest of my life so i better Mm. try and make the rock star thing work (laughs) Uh, but uh so after that they start putting tracks down for their second album uh in 82 uh released in april of 83 hootenanny their second album uh comes out and i think already they're starting to evolve the sound a little bit yeah I like this one better than the first album. There's not, uh, there's no songs really that stand out for me on this album. It's just so much fun to listen to, like even in a way that the first album isn't. Like they amped up the fun level uh, a little bit and you can, yeah, you can see, you can hear them still evolving their sound and just becoming better musicians. But I think this is the, this is the funnest of the albums that the replacement replacements mm-hmm. put out. And for that, I'm... I'm totally down with this album. Yeah, let's play a little example. We'll hear uh, the third track on the record. This is Color Me Impressed.
Yeah, I think this is one where that just kind of shows that they're really learning how to craft a good rock song, right? Mm. I mean, they uh, they had the energy from the first album, but yeah, like you said, this one is just more fun. They're obviously having a lot more fun trying out new things, experimenting, and just playing around, and uh, the results are pretty good, I think. Yeah. This is also the last punk album they're going to make, right? Like, by the time they get to... And when did Hootenanny come out? Was it 82 or 83? Uh, April of 83, yeah. 83. So Let It Be mm-hmm. is going to come out like a year later, and I don't know what happened between 83 <laughs> and 84, but it's going to be a completely different band like within a year. Yeah, it's true. They're evolving at a pretty rapid clip, I think. Uh, this one, uh, and it's funny, the the title track from this one, Hootenanny, which leads off the, the album, uh, when they were in the studio, just the fun they would have is to, to play a plank, prank on the engineer who was kind of off in a separate area, couldn't even see the band. He would tell them, okay, tape's rolling. They all switch instruments and say, okay, here's Hootenanny and E as the album starts off. And they all just make up that song right on right on the spot. And they're just cracking up. Then the guy comes in on the other side and he's like, uh, do you guys want to do another take or what? And they're like, nope, hmm. track one, side one, moving on. And so that's what, that's what ended up on the album. And it would nice. become a staple of the shows too. They would all switch instruments at some point and play that song like a different version every night practically i like that song that's a good song yeah it's it definitely sets the tone for the record i think lyrics aren't super meaningful but you know they don't all have to be Uh, yeah they made them up on the spot what do you expect uh but this is also uh during this time i mean right from the beginning paul had already he'd been writing songs for the band and writing ones that he knew wouldn't really fit for the band so he'd been kind of amassing a solo collection of songs that he'd been given to uh jesperson like kind of on the side just like what do you to get his opinion kind of what do you think of these uh one of them within your reach actually did end up on the record which is kind of a it has the drum machine in it which is weird and is a little slower so that's already kind of an inclination that paul at least wasn't content to just make straight away rock songs right and this too, uh, Bob's drinking, even though they're all drinking and partying, this is when it starts, it begins to leak into the recording sessions. Uh, he was kind of getting less prepared than the other members of the band were during that time. The, the shows would become harder for him to stay in focus during. So this is just kind of the beginning already on their second album he's already kind of starting the the decline mm-hmm. uh, as a as a member of the band but the stink and hootenanny and, and even the first album they're all picking up more and more traction uh they're selling a little bit more and this leads to them uh getting a gig uh opening for rem on their 83 tour mm-hmm. so this is kind of where they start to break out a little bit they hit up the east coast and the midwest with rem uh, and then immediately after that, they get in the studio to record Let It Be, where uh, Peter Buck even makes an appearance on the first track, I Will Dare. Yep. Which, right from that first track, you can tell, right? I mean, we had heard it last year, and now hearing it after hearing these other two albums, it really is like, wh- yeah, where did this come from? Like, they evolved yeah. so quickly, it seems like. I appreciate this album way more now, listening to it in the context of all of the other replacements albums. Like when we listen to it in the in season one, in the context of several other similar albums, like yeah, this is fine. But and mm-hmm. and it didn't stick with me. I remembered almost none of it except for I Will Dare. I did remember that one, and just very little of the rest of it. Like did not hit me at all. Now 
listening to it in the context of everything else and seeing how the band is transforming and changing and where this fits into their oeuvre uh, or whatever. Like, this makes a lot more sense now why this stands out. And I read somewhere... And I read it after having had the thought, so I was I appreciated the fact that I'm not alone in thinking of the replacements as like the 80s version of the Beatles in terms of where they started out and where they ended up and how rapidly they evolved and the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's fitting that their like, signature album in the middle of the decade uh, is a riff on a Beatles album, Let It Be. So yeah. I appreciated that, like a little bit of a crossover. That's mm-hmm. true. And and they're, you know, they were obviously fans and students of punk rock and everything that was going mm-hmm. on at the time but they also i mean they grew up loving classic rock and stuff too i mean they love the beatles there's a kiss cover on this album they're like they are yep. well versed in all varieties of rock and roll and aren't afraid to show those influences like they don't it doesn't just have to be the cool influences or whatever is of the right. time right they're not afraid to just this is what we're interested in this is what we're going to play like and, and was it on hoot nanny was it on hoot nanny that they did the the takeoff on oh darling yeah yeah exactly yeah on, that's uh, what i thought mr Worley, i think it's called right yes yeah 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 mm-hmm. Yeah, totally there's a, a riff on it starts with a like ripping off the twist and then goes right into an O'Darlin rip ripoff so yep. yeah yeah totally and then during during this whole time they record this in uh, minneapolis bob is also continues to maintain a job whenever they're not touring at a pizza place uh so he, he's already kind of like in a way showing the band like I'm not, even though you guys are kind of trying to become rock stars, I maybe never really wanted to leave the town or, you know, I I was comfortable just being the local band, you know? Right. So, and then that's, that's another way he's kind of starting to distance himself from the rest of the band, but let it be becomes their most successful up to this point. Uh, And then over the next two years, they'd be playing 200 shows across the country Mm -hmm. and they're starting to, at this point, maybe outgrow twin tone as a label too. Uh, this is, they've not made hardly any money off of them because every time twin tone makes money off of it, they're pouring it into some new artist. And so they're owed thousands of dollars of back, uh, royalties, which they wouldn't even collect on it for like 10 years after this. Wow. So they're starting to, eye, well, they're starting to eye other labels, but at the same time, Anytime they booked a show where they caught word that an executive was in the crowd, they would just tank the show and just troll over the entire <laughs> audience. So they, they wanted yep. the success, but only on their terms, really. And they were more than willing to kind of shoot themselves in the foot at every given opportunity. That makes was, sense. So it's kind of their life Bob did Bob have a job and the others didn't just because of the kind of distancing himself and sticking with Minneapolis? Because the way that I was... Uh, reading the backstory, like they just didn't have a lot of money at this time, so Bob was working at a pizza place in order to pay bills. I think it was to pay bills too, but they all viewed it as like, well, now you're paying less attention to the band. Why isn't that gotcha. the most important okay. thing? You know, so certainly there was a practical, you know, element to it, but at the same time they viewed it as, well, this is your job. You're like you're in the band, so, and nobody else was really doing that. And I don't know that how much of Bob's money was paying for, you know, the rest of the band stuff. So I don't think they really saw any benefit of it. Right. Because they were, uh, they were still getting, they'd get paid for the gigs, but that would be, 
you know, a couple hundred bucks that they'd all have to split. So it, it was still not really covering their expenses necessarily. So there, it was practical for Bob, but they kind of viewed it as a as a slight to the band. Okay. Eventually they would uh, run into a guy named Seymour Stein, who was the head of Sire Records, which was owned by Warner Brothers at the time. Uh, he caught a show of theirs in December of 84, and unlike other record executives, was able to keep up with them throughout the night afterwards, and uh, was able to then convince them uh, to sign with Sire Records. So that became their major label uh, signing uh, by the beginning of 85, uh, which put them on the same label as our artist from last week, Madonna. So now they're in the They go together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> they never Going opened for us, strangely, cool. but yeah. yeah. Uh, but then they that's when they start putting together, uh, they're still recording in Minneapolis, but they put together their fourth full length, the first with Sire, uh, in the summer of 85. They begin recording Tim, their next album, which uh, the title of which apparently is not a reference to anything. They just thought it would be really funny to put out an album called Tim. <laughs> which they said was funny and then they woke up and it was less funny and then they drank some more and it was funny again so they they went with it i hear that line from uh, monty python on the holy grail kind of worked out the same way <laughs> yeah exactly maybe there's that was the inspiration they don't remember <laughs> well, anyway let's hear a little bit of one of the songs uh, off of tim i'm gonna go with uh, one of the ballads on there this is swinging party you can already tell this is a pretty rocking album but they're getting more and more into the ballads and the more pop songs and this was also something that bob was kind of avoiding this is paul giving more and more influence over the songwriting uh, but what do you think of this album i love this album this was this is good we're not we're not really necessarily comparing or ranking let it be in the context of this i'm not sure if i prefer let it be to this or this to let it be Mm -hmm. but they both hold up really really well and for similar reasons like it's a similar sound this is that Mm -hmm. point that mid 80s point in their evolution you played uh, Swingin' Party which is a really cool ballad off of this album but they'd already started doing that uh, and let it be with songs like Androgynous so they're already kind of moving in that direction so Mm -hmm. both of those albums I think hold up really and equally well but i think it's really good yeah i like this one a lot it it has i think the only thing that kind of holds it back uh which kind of makes sense after reading about it it was produced by tommy ramone which is cool and they enjoyed that Mm -hmm. but they were still using a lot of guitars and and equipment that were just 
had been beat to shit over the last 200 shows that they've been playing. And the Tommy was losing his hearing more and more every day on this recording this record. So I think the mix on this one is a little off. Like even hearing it, even hearing Let It Be before this and the album after this, this one sounds a little flat to me, which is a little unfortunate because the songs are still great, but yeah. something they don't have the, quite the same punch that some of the other ones do. Uh, Maybe. And uh, I don't have enough of a musical background to be able to tell to be able to tell that difference. And I might not have even noticed too if I wasn't listening to like all these albums in a row all the time. Right. But like noticing when I had to like adjust the volume and and or even in the headphones it would sound just not quite as good as the other ones and they've put them out i have a like one of the old cds of it but they have re-released it maybe the the remaster sounds better but you know this original mix it's a little flat but otherwise it's still a great record songwriting wise yeah you have favorites Uh, off of this album yeah off of this one i love swinging party uh bastards of young is definitely a highlight bastards of young for me yeah uh, but I think uh, I like Left of the Dial, I think, is on this one, too. Mm-hmm. That's right? a good one. Yeah. Um, it has a good flow. I think the the sequence on this album is good, too. I think all the songs uh, sound great together. It's a good album to sit down and listen to. I think they're really good in general at picking good opening tracks. Hold My Life is the is the yeah. opening track off of this one, and mm-hmm. it's great. I Will Dare is the opening track off of Let It Be. It's great. Uh, one of my favorite songs for just the replacements in general is Taking a Ride, which is the opening track off of Sorry Ma. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we're going to get to Please to Meet Me in a minute. That's got a great opening track as well. They're really good at, like, how do we kick off an album in yeah. our, like, hard rocking way that's going to set the tone for the entire rest of what's to come? And this is another example of that. Yeah, definitely. They they for sure know how to pick a, a lead track. Uh, they would also then... Uh, in support of this, play their first television appearance, uh, which would be on an episode of Saturday Night Live, where they I watch this. <laughs> they uh, so they they get two numbers in there. The first one they play "Bastards of Young," uh, and during which, after a rough rehearsal in the dress rehearsal, Paul has made a point to lean over to Bob during it and yell, "Come the fuck on!" before the guitar solo, which yep. got picked up on the live uh, microphones and then. Uh, they got chewed out by Lorne Michaels in the meantime, went on to play uh, Kiss Me on the Bus after that, but then would be banned from the show uh, after that and would never Forever. play again. Yeah. And it might have it might have been the it might have been the swear word it might have been the drunkenness it might have mm-hmm. been that apparently they just spent the entire afternoon getting wasted with the host of the show. Yep. <laughs> uh, was it Bob broke his guitar stumbling through a hallway and G.E. Smith had to lend him one at the last possible second? Like, it was a total trash fire of an appearance. Yeah, it was a, it was, you got the full replacements experience, it sounds like, uh, when you yeah. were in the building that day. Um, but yeah, they, uh, when, as soon as they got there, Peter had gone up to, you know, the people in the green room noticed it was just like, you know, a fruit and veggie tray. And he's like, well, this isn't going to work. And so he went over and was like, can you just pick up a couple six packs? And like the, the PA or whoever <laughs> he asked looked like completely disgusted at him. It was like, Oh, what are you talking about? So this that was is Saturday great. night live, sir. <laughs> exactly. We only do cocaine in this building. <laughs> yeah. We have standards, sir. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that would uh, be the end of their NBC career uh, after that. 
Um, and then they were also encouraged to try and make some music videos, which they were adamantly against, mm-hmm. um, but did give in enough to allow a music video to be made uh, for Bastards of Young, which is just a black and white shot of a speaker playing the song with a foot tapping next to it and a guy smoking a cigarette. <laughs> that would be the whole video. And they would kind of yeah. reuse other other bits of footage from that same day for uh a couple other songs on the record, but that was that was all they wanted a music video to be. If they had Didn't to make the foot it. kick in the radio at the end of the song. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's kind of like some people would say it's the worst music video. Some said it's the ultimate rock and roll video to just say, "Fine, look at this speaker for four minutes." It's probably up Let's to the viewer. Kanye they what feel, he but. thinks. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather not. But I'm gonna let you finish. But the replacements. At three <laughs> yeah. minutes of a radio just still shot with a song playing in the background. <laughs> now that was a video. That was a video. Uh, but despite all the, you know, the commotion, they still, the sales were increasing at the time. And they, they Tim became their best selling at the time. All the other ones in the back catalog were picking up as well. Uh, they got to tour Europe for the first time after this, which they found interesting because the, the audiences were getting bigger in the U.S. and then going across to Europe, they got smaller again. So they were a little disappointed with that and, and acted accordingly. But I don't know that any venues banned them, so that maybe it worked out okay. That's good. Were they disappointed by that? Because this, this feels like the sort of band that... Didn't one of them say I'd rather play... Uh, didn't one of them say I'd rather play a gig for 50 people who love us than 5,000 people who've never heard of us? Like, I feel like if they go to Europe and they're, they're, they've got 50 people showing up for their arena shows, they would be totally down with that. I think... It's all part of their insecurities, right? I think yeah, they, in their hearts, always wanted to play big crowds and be a big band. But if it didn't go that way, then they're going to own it and make it their choice, you know? Right, so I think, right. And also, they would, they did like to play smaller crowds. They would go back sometimes to Minneapolis and play the small clubs for, you know, five days straight. Mm. Uh, but then even by the end of that, they started the second or third show, they would get worse and worse on purpose just because they'd start getting bored. And so it's hard to say kind of what their, you know, what their motives were at any given time because they were always shooting themselves in the foot anyway. Yeah. They were the masters of self-sabotage, I think. But then they, so they begin working on their next uh, studio album in uh, 80, summer, summer of 86. As they're working on it, it's kind of when it comes to a head with Bob, they decide he was barely even functional for the Tim recording sessions. They took him on tour. And then after that, as a group kind of decided that they needed to move on. So they, they make the call to Bob and and say that he can't be in the band anymore. Right. And so then with that, they record their next one just as a trio, uh, which would be uh, come They'd be pleased to meet me in June of 1987. That would release. Uh, We'll play a little bit of the closing track from that one. Uh, This is Can't Hardly Wait.
Uh, what do you think of this uh, album, Aaron? Uh, uh, I love this album. This is my number one uh, for yeah. sure. And again, great opening song with IOU. Alex Chilton was the song that I was most familiar with of the replacements heading into this album. So I loved hearing mm-hmm. that again. Uh, I The only thing that I will say, and it's, it's to do with Can't Hardly Wait, I got on... I'm searching, you know, what are, what are the best replacement songs? What are the ones that stand out? What are the ones that replacements fans, like, come back to and, and love? Just make sure I'm not missing anything. Uh, mm-hmm. And, the you know, every list that you look at, kind of the similar ones stand out. I Will Dare is always up there, Unsatisfied, Alex Chilton, Bastards of Young. Uh, everyone always mentions Can't Hardly Wait. And every other song that gets held up as a great replacement song, I get it. Even if I don't love the song personally, I understand why it stands out as being great i don't get can't hardly wait explain this to me like why is that such a it's fine it's a fine Mm -hmm. song i don't get why people consider it to be great i think for one it's a very catchy song which i like i think it's a very good guitar riff right out of the gate i think it has a good build Mm -hmm. to it i think it's funny that this is one of the ones i like the most because it has like these string and horn overdubs, which kind of stand in contrast to the replacements as a band. But for some reason it works for me and, and the band would kind yeah. of make fun of the overdubs afterwards. But then also they, they agreed that it was the right choice for the song. And Paul would uh, a couple times like break out a violin to try and pr- like during a live show, he would stumble through like a violin <laughs> performance of the song. But I don't know something about it. I think it's very catchy and very fun and was a good it's a fun way to close the record too i think it's it's yeah. a strong closing track for me maybe maybe for me it's the horns cuz that's that's one of the things that i just hate about 80s music in general is just the over reliance on saxophone solos and you get a little mm-hmm. of that in this and maybe that's what turned me off to it i don't know I, I don't even dislike the song i think it's a perfectly fine song it's just i went back to all those top 10 lists and like can't hardly wait can't hardly wait we named a movie after it it's awesome <laughs> like i don't get it <laughs> All the other ones, yes. This one, no. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. I think it might. But the rest of the also, album is spectacular. It is. This is one of my favorite records. I think this is. Uh, I don't know if it's my number one, but it's definitely one that I go back to a lot. And on "Can't Hardly Wait," they recorded a demo with Alex Chilton uh, during the Tim sessions, and then they brought it back for this album, and he actually played on it too. Yeah. So he gets a little song tribute to him, and he gets to play on the record too, which is fun. Uh, but then. After this, they got to go on tour and they got to find somebody to replace Bob. Uh, so they hire a longtime friend of the band named uh, Slim Dunlop, uh, whose name is actually Bob, but they nobody in the band could bring themselves to replace Bob with a guy that they had to call Bob. So they would all force him to become Slim instead. <laughs> uh, but he Bob was actually one of the ones to kind of champion him uh, as the replacement. So he, ironically, not the replacement replacement. But uh, he helped him learn the songs, and uh, they went out on tour in '87, and became a you know kind of a new foursome. He took over. He had a different. He wasn't the same kind of energy that Bob was, but he was a good guitar player. He was able to help bounce ideas off of Paul. Uh, he became kind of another surrogate brother for Tommy, and he was as Chris was kind of the. The, if anybody was a loner in the group, it was Chris, and Slim kind of became a sounding board for his concerns too. So he was a good, mm-hmm. good member of the band to throw in uh, 
after losing a core member of the group. So what was uh, the relationship between the band and Bob Stinson at the time? Like, at was, this it, point, was it still friendly at that point, or what was what was the deal? It, sa- it seems to me, at least from reading the book, that it was kind of, they kind of severed all ties. I mean, even Tommy, they would talk to him occasionally when they were in town, but for the most part, they cut him loose and kind of didn't really speak. I, I think Bob still wished he was in the band, but understood that it was going someplace that he didn't want to go and wasn't going to be able to keep up with them. Gotcha. And so he, you know, he still had his job at the Italian restaurant. He would bounce around with a couple other local bands after that, but he kind of became his own thing and the replacements moved on without him. And yeah, even Tommy as his real life brother, they didn't really talk that much while they were in the band. So, which is kind of sad, but yeah, but they kept on uh, gaining popularity at this point. Uh, they're doing decently for Sire, but there's a little pressure to make the next one the big one, uh, especially considering their former tour mates at this point in 88 signed like a record-setting million-dollar deal with uh, Warner Brothers. So REM is getting ready to put out Green. So there, there's people in their kind of, uh, you know, in, in their peer group who are suddenly becoming, you know, like, worldwide sensations and everybody's kind of wondering is the replacements are they able to to do that as well so there's kind of mm-hmm. that built-in pressure coming into this next album uh they're able to tour the uh they do a, a worldwide tour they tour the u.s and europe again uh leading up to this, this next uh, album uh, they would start after that tour recording a little bit in new york just kind of demoing getting some songs together uh, that one, that session wouldn't really work out. So then they move, they've bounced around a couple different producers, end up in LA with a guy named Matt Wallace, where they now are starting to record tracks uh, for what would become uh, their next album, Don't Tell a Soul. Mm-hmm. And so now this one is interesting because it's once they record it, they release it, and it gets mixed again by uh, somebody that the record company. Uh, appointed to have kind of the final mix a guy named chris lord alge who would take it and try and give it a quote radio friendly sound i mean they were trying to throw as much behind this as they could to make this their breakout album uh but some people would then blame that mix for being too clean too polished and being not part of the reason why it didn't take off so now mm-hmm. september of 2019 they released what was going to be the original mix of the album uh, that producer Matt Wallace did himself uh, as part of a box set called Dead Man's Pop. So now you can actually compare the two mixes of the album, and, and we will do that now with uh, one of the songs on that I think has the biggest difference. This is uh, Will Inherit the Earth, which I will start with the original Don't Tell a Soul version and then fade into the Dead Man's Pop version. Back 
What do you think, Aaron, of the of the album in general, and then also the comparison uh, between the two mixes? Uh, I'll answer the second question first. Uh, Dead Man's Pop, the the original, uh, the the in the intended mix before right. it was before it was remixed. Uh, I think that's I think that's significantly better. I think the the <laughs> rawer sound is just best for for this particular band. So I was more of a fan of Dead Man's Pop versus Don't Tell a Soul. Uh, that said, I don't think that's why this album didn't take off. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, it's, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's because Bob Stinson isn't with, isn't with the band anymore and it's a different vibe or maybe it's just something to do with this particular album or something, but this just kind of falls off in terms of quality for me versus especially the three albums that had come before it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. What What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think this one, it's definitely, I don't think it is the mix that made it, that held it back, right? I do agree that the Dead Man's Pop version, every track by track is a better mix. If you're going to listen to the mm-hmm. album one way, I think that's the way to listen to it. But but you're right. It wasn't the polished production that made this not not take off for him. I think... There are good songs on here, and I enjoy listening to it. And I think it's actually a pretty consistent album, start to finish. But it is—it doesn't have the same fun that the other ones did, right? It's a little yeah. more uh, subdued. It's a little more dirge. It's not really a dirge, but it's like Paul has, f- at this point, fully taken over the songwriting for the most part, and has leaned more and more into those ballads into the more self you know introspective songs and i think it's at the it takes away from some of the fun that the other albums had the first couple of albums were kids having fun the second albums like the mature period of the replacements in the middle of the decade was uh, a young band of great musicians who had something to say. This album reminded me of a group of professional musicians who were going into the studio and recording an album because it's their job. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is is the only thing that I could think like listening to it. It's like, I don't think you have anything to say. I don't think you are having a lot of fun being in here. I think mm-hmm. you're just going in here and recording an album because 
that's what you're either contractually obligated to do or that's what you feel like the next move has to be, but I didn't really get anything in terms of feeling out of this album. And I mean, we've been talking about like, oh, did the did the polished mix hold it back? Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it really did. If anything, the polished mix may have facilitated its success because this is the one album that had a single that went to the top of the charts. Uh, this album, I think, sold pretty well. Like, it got radio airplay. The single did. And, like, it was mm-hmm. it was successful by that standard. I just don't think it's successful as it's as successful musically as the the albums that had come before it. Yeah, it was at that. It did become their most commercially successful to that point. I'll yeah. be you was released as a single, went to number one on the modern rock charts and number fifty one on the Billboard one hundred. So. The, they got exposure. I mean, people heard this song more than they heard anything else. I mean, if in 1989, if you ask somebody who their placements were, they would have either, if unless they live in Minneapolis, and they probably just heard "I'll Be You," right? Maybe they saw the SNL performance. Maybe they saw the Bastards of the Young video. But they, at that point, I mean, they did get some exposure from this uh, song, but it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't people seeing them at their best, right? Yeah. Which, by then, the way, I I I discovered this uh, doing some background stuff. Like, I'll be you made it to the top. Tra- made it to the top of what was the chart exactly? Modern rock something. Mo- modern rock, and it was number one on the album oriented rock. Uh, album oriented well. rock. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that was it. I looked up album oriented rock. It's like, okay, so this song made it to number one, which didn't really stand out to me at all. Like, what other songs? made it to number one off of uh from this period or just in general on album oriented rock do you know the the band that had the most i think i'm remembering this right the band that had the most number one hits on that particular chart is like three days grace or something like that seven days grace (laughs) three days grace i think it's three yeah yeah i think it's three like that is not like and and no no denigration to three days grace they're fine but that is not the band that i would think of as having the most number ones on any chart let alone this one but there you go more even than nickelback as it turns out so wow (laughs) yeah i know right like more number ones than nickelback i didn't think that was possible (laughs) yeah well Maybe that's why I didn't even put the album-oriented chart in my notes because I was like, well, that's not an important chart, clearly, so I won't even write it down. But it is, you know, this would be the beginning of the end, essentially, because after this, they would release one more album, uh, All Shook Down in 1990, which is, which basically at that point, in all but name, is a Paul solo record. Right. Uh, Chris was pretty much checked out of the group at that point. Uh, he was starting to focus on other things and wasn't really enjoying the the grind of the drunken tours anymore and wasn't getting the songwriting credits or anything that he was getting before. So he he was kind of over it. Paul and Tommy recorded on this on the record definitely, but it was a rotating cast of drummers. I think Slim played on it as well. But after they put a tour together for All Shook Down, they called it in 91, and that was the official end of the band. Um, but... I think, you know, on the um, Dead Man's Pop collection, there is a live show from 89 as well after um, Don't Tell a Soul came out. And it's still a fun show. You can tell that at that point, they still are having fun. They're playing well. The songs they play from like all the last four albums, uh, plus a little bit more. They're still 
almost right till the end we're still able to have a good time so i think the fact that it only went on really two years later is probably good you know they didn't run it into the ground too hard or at, at their pace they ran it into the ground but they did they were doing it at such a pace that it happened in two years rather than stretched out over five or six or something again but, Beatles of the 80s right yeah. like you you start your band you shoot to the top you evolve you transform you make these incredible albums and then you run out of steam and you break up before uh, before you just sort of drag it on forever like yep that's that's a familiar story actually mm-hmm. yeah it's true uh, but after that, uh, Paul in the nineties did, uh, go sober after that point, uh, he got divorced and ended up releasing five solo albums after, but he had some trouble. It just kind of had trouble dealing with being an influential artist rather than a successful one. You know, he kept hearing other bands who were selling millions of records, name check the replacements and wondering like, well, where was everybody when the replacements were playing? You know, like mm-hmm. he, he he had trouble dealing with that, I think. Just the fact that he always wanted to be successful. He obviously kept improving his songwriting, but, you know, it just, sometimes you just have to, like all the, all the artists, like fine artists from the centuries ago, right? They were never successful in their lifetime. It was always afterwards right. that people found them. So I think that, that he struggled with that for a while. Uh, Chris would Chris Mars would leave to basically become a fine artist himself. He became a painter for the most part. He recorded two solo albums, actually five uh, solo albums of his own over the last 20 or so years, but mainly was a painter. Uh, and then Slim recorded two solo albums. He actually suffered a stroke in 2012, and Paul and Tommy reunited uh, to release as the replacements an EP uh, called Songs for Slim to raise money for his medical bills. Uh, Mars did not play on it, but he did paint the album art uh, for the record, which is cool. Uh, Tommy would play with a couple other uh, Minneapolis-based bands after that, release two solo albums, and then he would uh, go on in the late 90s to join Guns N' Roses for their decade-long struggle with Chinese democracy. (laughs) So that was (laughs) an interesting turn uh, for him. Uh, And then Bob, uh, you know, after he left the band, would play around with some other bar bands in Minneapolis. Um continued to get heavy into drinking and drugs uh, and due to his increasingly uh, abusive behavior with his wife she left him in 92 and then three years after that he would sit in his apartment put on a yes record and then fall asleep uh, and not wake up so in 1995 Mm -hmm. he died uh, due to organ failure but that was the end of the replacements so uh, it's definitely a storied career a lot of great albums came out of it uh, and a lot of good stories. Uh, but what were your, Aaron, what were your top five songs, would you say, from The Replacements? Top five songs. Okay, so are we counting Let It Be? Yes, definitely. Okay, cool. So counting down from number five, uh, and again, I'm not my favorite album, but uh, the first song off of the first album, Sorry Ma, uh, Taking a Ride, is my number five. Nice. Uh, number four and number three, and I'm not sure where they rank relative to each other, uh, are the first two songs off of Please to Meet Me, IOU and Alex Chilton. Um, nice. I'd have to listen to them a thousand times in a row <laughs> to identify like which one I like better than the other, but both of them are there. Uh, number two is Bastards of Young. 
um, which is a great song. And I, I heard the Saturday Night Live version uh, as as much of a train wreck as that appearance was. <laughs> like, I thought they did a pretty good job playing Bastards of Young on SNL as well. But the, mm-hmm. the album version is definitely better. Number one off of Let It Be is Unsatisfied. Um, nice. Yeah. I think if I went back and listened to them all again, maybe I'd have a different top five, but I, I think Unsatisfied is definitely my number one. Yeah. This is a this is a top five where, yeah, any day of the week it might be different for me yeah. also. But I did eventually sit down and, and force myself to just pick the five and, and write it down as is. So for me, I had uh, at five, I had uh, 16 Blue from Let It Be. I love that song. Uh, one of the yeah, one of the earlier indications of the ballad kind of songwriting that they'd go towards. That's a good one too. Uh, yeah, and it has a great guitar solo at the end. Yep. Um, four, I have uh, "Can't Hardly Wait," my you know okay. the inexplicable favorite. Uh, for number three, I have "I Will Dare" from Let It Be. Yes. Uh, that's that's great... for sure in my top ten. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. A great opening track. Great. Yep landmark for the new direction of the band basically uh and then it's funny my two bastards of young my number one unsatisfied so we actually nice. we had the same we agreed hey i know <laughs> <laughs> the hardest part of this one was sitting down and I'm like well it was easy last week I just had Shooby Doo and then four others what am I going to do yeah this no week? of course yeah that, that <laughs> classic Madonna song <laughs> uh, and then for what was your if you had to pick one album including Let It Be what uh, for the band what would you say is your best album pleased to meet me definitely pleased yeah. to meet me yeah I have mine's Let It Be for sure I mean there are three of my top five songs are on that one I think right. that album's you know obviously I've heard it the most since we heard it first last year but it's still that's still the one I go back to the most, and and probably the yeah. one I'd recommend anybody starting with. But please, it's a good it's a good start my... for yeah. It's it's a good start. Although honestly, like I appreciated Let It Be more having listened to the first two albums that came before it. So maybe mm-hmm. if you're if you want to start with the replacements, like go back to square one and start with Sorry I'm I Forgot to Take Out the Trash, and just like take the time to, to go through at least through please to meet me and uh yeah. and i think you'll i think i'll appreciate it 
Don't tell yeah, a soul is true. is not necessary. I don't think, but the first five are are for I, sure. I like it enough that I think I I would recommend it, especially the uh, Dead Man's Pop version. Yeah, um, but I mean, you're right. It's certainly Please Meet Me is probably my second favorite, and then then probably I I actually I go back and forth whether I like um I mean I, I definitely like Tim next, but then between I go back and forth between Hoot and Annie and Don't Tell a Soul. I like actually. I think they're obviously different points in the band's career. They're very. Different it's hard to compare albums. Yeah. yeah. But I do enjoy "Don't Tell Us All." I think it's. A, I think it's still a good album, even if it's not the fun, the uh, you know kind of explosions of energy that the other ones are. Yeah, it's just not a replacements album. Like the my favorite song, easily my favorite song off of "Don't Tell Us Soul is "Darlin' One," which is clearly a Guns N' Roses song, right? Or an Aerosmith <laughs> song. Like, it's a, it's an 80s... It's a very high-quality 80s. Like, we're a little bit better than hair metal, but still we listen to Poison kind of uh, kind of song. And I, I just wanted, like, Axl Rose and Slash to take that song and just knock it out of the park. But the way the replacements did it, it's like, yeah, this is, this is good. I like it. I, I, can, I can hear what it could be. I cut my hands around It's certainly the most like epic song. If you're going to yeah. describe a song as epic, that's the one you would use. Exactly, right? Like if they're going to make a music video, like have Slash like standing there with like a wind machine blowing his hair out of proportion like in November rain. Like that's what yeah. I want from Darling One. <laughs> I like Talent Show a lot on that record too, the first oh, song. Oh, Talent Show is good too, yeah. I think and that's, that's the that's favorite. the opening track off of that one too, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. They yeah. they always nail their opening tracks. So. Yep, yep. But yeah, that'll that wraps up our conversation on the replacements. And now next week, uh, we will be going across the pond to hear some XTC, which I'm excited about because I don't know much about them really. I know if you don't know much about them, that put you that puts you not much up on me. <laughs> nothing. So this will be fun. I mean, we obviously knew at least a little bit about Madonna. We heard some replacements already. This will be kind of right. a little uncharted territory. So this is a good sampling of what's to come for the show awesome all right well thank you aaron for joining me thank you to the replacements for the awesome music thank you everyone for listening and as always it's never too late to discover something that's new to you thanks aaron thank you thanks for listening to andy here's the 80s if you haven't done so already please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on whatever podcast service you use show notes for this episode along with some more in-depth thoughts on the dead man's pop collection we found at acton.wordpress.com that's acton.wordpress.com if you have any questions comments suggestions or feedback you can send me an email at andyhearsthe80s at gmail.com that's 80s spelled out e-i-g-h-t-i-e-s at gmail.com or hit me up on twitter at andyhearsit thanks for listening and see you next time <laughs>